folks. Welcome to Stand to Reason. Greg Kokel here, your host. And I'm actually not recording today. I'm recording yesterday, which you're going to hear tomorrow, which that is in two days. So I'm actually recording two days ago, not today. <laughs> All that means is instead of being on Tuesday, I'm recording on Monday. That means we're going to be doing open mic calls. I'll tell you about that in a moment. Which also means don't call me tomorrow because I won't be here. Of course, you're going to hear this warning the day after tomorrow, so you won't know. It's like that guy who wrote the letter and said, and by the way, if you don't get this letter, let me know, and I'll send you another. <laughs> so anyway, I am uh, heading out with my family for a number of weeks away, rusticating, sort of, in northern Wisconsin for the rest of the month and beginning of J uh, July, and uh, we do this every year, and <clears throat> The girls are getting older now, and they're uh, <clears throat> not so keen on the idea, at least the eldest. This might be her last year, but uh, I'm keen on the idea, so uh, looking forward to leaving. But that means I, I can't record on my regular Tuesday, and so I'm recording on Monday. We'll take open mic calls. Now, many of you know the open mic calls are calls that you uh, send in in advance. It's kind of like an STR ask except for it's an audio. So hashtag STR ask is when you give a short question, um, kind of tweet length uh, with the words hashtag STR ask in it, and then that comes to Amy, and then Amy and I deal with those questions in our broadcast, uh, two of those a week, about a half hour each. And uh, this is similar, except for you're doing it in an audio. So you can go to our website, our homepage, Look under podcasts to live broadcasts, and uh, there's the instructions that you can follow to leave your question. Or you can simply dial 857-DIAL-STR, 857-DIAL-STR, or 857-342-5787, and uh, follow the prompts and leave your message there. So we're going to be moving through these. Um, I have. Uh, I, I do want to say something, though, about last week, because last week my broadcast was on June 6th, which is my anniversary, my 25th, as it turns out, in that case. But it's also D-Day, and a celebration of the invasion, or maybe celebration is the right word, I don't, I don't know, it, it succeeded, so I guess you could celebrate that, but it is certainly a, a, a memorial, a reflection on, a marking on the calendar of this unbelievable, unbelievable, magnificent event that happened on June 6, 1944, where Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy. Americans at uh, Utah and Omaha and uh, then the Canadians and the Brits on Sword Juno. Um, I'm trying to remember the other ones. The ones that stand out for me, of course, are the ones that we landed on. And Utah was easy, Omaha, relatively easy. Omaha, that's because the, all of the airborne cr crew, the 82nd Airborne and 101st Airborne, landed behind the lines of Utah and were able to suppress a lot of the attack on the beach at Utah, make, making that landing uh, much uh, less bloody than the horrific landing miles down the coast at Omaha. And uh, But they were all dramatic, and uh, the story 
writ broad, which is a collection of stories of individuals making their way onto the beaches and in, in inland and securing ground against very heavy opposition, to me, are, are magnificent. Fascinating. I, I've read the book D-Day by Stephen Ambrose, which uh, is really a collection. It's, he's blending his, um, his, his writing authorship recounting of D-Day, blending it in with first-person accounts of people who reflected back on what happened on those days. So it's kind of a strange amalgam of those two things. And uh, then, of course, Band of Brothers, which they made the wonderful film uh, HBO series out of. And um, if you have even the slightest interest in <clears throat> those kinds of things, historical or military, um, it certainly is worth reading those books, or at least, in the case of uh, Band of Brothers, watching the series, which is magnificently made. And uh, Or you can watch um, uh, Saving Private Ryan, which has its own virtues as well. I mean, all of these are very straightforward um honest characterizations of what our boys, and I do mean boys, who were young men, faced when they hit the beaches and took, began to take the continent. Now, it, once they got on the beaches and they began to move forward, it was a fight all the way to Berlin. And that's because the Germans put up so much resistance. And Hitler had given a, a command to give no ground. Do not retreat. So anyway, that whole thing is fascinating to me, but it all started with D-Day 79 years ago and a week. And when you think about 79 years ago, that means that if a soldier was 20 years old for the invasion, that soldier, if he survived, is 99 years old now. If he was eight, 18 years old, which is unlikely, because I think he had to be 17 to join up. Now, some lied about their age. They joined when they were 16, said they were 17. But you have a year of training or so uh, before you, you actually can be shipped out and be in combat. And uh, and so if you were, let's see, even if you were even 18 on D-Day, which uh, strikes me as the youngest, maybe 17. But if you're 18, you're 97. If you're 17, you're 96 now. Not many people live to 96, which means there are hardly any survivors of D-Day around. And I saw some figure, I can't recall the number, but how many World War II veterans die every day. And this is why I always make a special attempt when I see uh, a World War II veteran uh, and wearing his cap to stop and talk to them, and not just to thank them, and I don't say thank you for your service, and the reason I don't say thank you for your service is that's what everybody says, and it almost sounds like it's trite. It, it's genuine, I think, when people say it, but it sounds to me trite. I always say thank you for your sacrifice. And then I want to know, where did you serve? Did you serve in the Pacific Theater or in the um, in the uh, European Theater? Uh, what did you do? 
were you infantry? Were you artillery? Were you support troops? Were you medical? Sur- I just want to know. I want to give them a chance to talk about it. And uh, like I said, you, you, you will not find someone, at least from the beginning uh, of the early, early, early years of the war, and incidentally, 44 was just a year from the end of the war. The war ended in 45 in Europe in April and then in September in the Pacific. But there are a lot of people that were fighting in 42, Guadalcanal, Peleliu, uh, Iwo, and Iwo Jima was, I don't know, 43 or 44, but, you know, right on up the archipelago with all the islands hopping towards Japan. And so, you know, very few left. Now, I had... I'm just going to say the remarkable privilege. I don't like using that phrase. It was a privilege for me. I've had the privilege to do, because it's another one of those things that you hear all the time, and it seems, like I said, I had the privilege of serving my church for blah, blah, blah. I don't say that stuff, because everybody expects you to say privilege, too, and it doesn't seem to carry much weight. But I'm explaining to you now that this, in my case, when I say this, it was, to me, like, an OMG privilege to actually have dinner, watch this, with the 101st Airborne D-Day drop. I had dinner with a guy, this is a number of years ago, and he's no longer alive. I was up in the Portland, not Portland, but Seattle area, and the pastor picked me up for an event, and he said, we're having dinner with my dad. He's he's not a Christian. He's really crotchety. He'll either love you or he'll hate you. But um, he is a D-Day, 101st Airborne D-Day drop. He was the 50, I think he was with the 502 uh, PIR, Parachute Infantry Regiment, where Band of Brothers was the 506th. Or maybe I got the two mixed up. But in any event, there were so few people left, they all were hanging together, right? And uh, none of the Band of Brothers guys are alive anymore notably Richard Winters, who commanded that outfit uh, for the drop, because their commanding officer was killed in the drop, and he took over there for, um, you know, until until uh, Operation Market Garden and passed that, and then he got bumped upstairs. But in any event, all those guys are gone. If you watch the Band of Brothers series, which is magnificent, just magnificent for on a whole bunch of levels, uh, you know who I'm talking about, Richard Winters. And he was the guy who said, no, I wasn't a hero, but I served with a with a group of heroes. And uh, none of these people thought they were doing anything heroic, even though he was decorated along with a group of men for the second day after the landing and taking Braycourt Manor, taking out, I think, three or maybe four 88s and that's very well characterized in the Band of Brothers series. And you can actually go online and see a, a very vivid, a clear, kind of graphical presentation of how they maneuvered tactically to take out these guns. And they only had one casualty. I think they got almost 100 prisoners. This is amazing, just amazing. And he got a, a silver star for that, and so did some of the others that were fighting. But uh, if you like the military stuff, you know, that's something that uh, you will benefit from that. But I want you to think of, though, that the, 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 I, I don't actually know the raw numbers of our boys that were lost on D-Day proper. 
um, I do know something like 30,000 civilians died. That would be French. Um, that's what it cost to bombard the coast, to soften it up, to bring in uh, both all, all the Allied forces under General Eisenhower to be able to oppose the German armies and push them back. But uh, it's a fascinating tale, plus the slate of hand. Uh, Hitler thought the launch was going to it was it was going to happen further north, and all his Panzer divisions were up there in the north, and uh, the tightest distance between Great Britain and uh, and France, and uh, and he was fooled, and so the Panzers weren't there to oppose. The, the landing. And these are all little details. The more you read about these things, the more amazing it is that it succeeded. Because there were all of these, we're just going to, in scare quotes, call them coincidences, that uh, succeeded because, uh, I mean, coincidences that provided for success in an unbelievable gamble. Because on that day, there was no guarantee they were going to succeed. And at times it seemed that there was, it was not going to succeed, especially what happened at Omaha Beach. But what it what happened was it wasn't the officers, but it was the NCOs and enlisted men that individually, after all the groups were busted up into little pieces in that landing in Omaha, that took initiative to take action to then move into the higher ground and take out the machine gun nests, etc. Unbelievable, unbelievable. And it's all, of course, chronicled in uh, in uh, the book D-Day by Ambrose. Um, it's also chronicled in uh, Band of Brothers, obviously, and you'll see it in Saving Private Ryan, much of the uh, detail of that event. So I tip my hat to anyone uh, who is still alive and can hear my voice who participated in that. I was kicking myself, and I don't know what I was thinking, but I never got a picture of me with the gentleman, the crusty old guy who was 101st Airborne, D-Day drop. And uh, I don't know what I was thinking. But I also had another conversation uh, with with a, with a fella. His, his name is—I'll I'll think of it in a moment. I bought his book, too, who is a survivor of the Bataan Death March in the Philippines. And uh, I didn't get a picture with him either. And again, I'm thinking, what was I thinking? Because they're all gone. Um, his name was Glenn Frazier. They're all gone. I could show you a picture if I just picked up my Google on my phone and Googled the Baton Death March and went to pictures. I could point you to you the guy that I had that conversation with. He was a Christian, too. Anyway, um, just a, re a, a, a remembrance of a generation gone by, the greatest generation, some have called it, of people who have served in amazing ways, in ways that we can't imagine. By the way, they didn't do tours of duty in that war. They were in for the duration. They shipped out, and they didn't come back until the war was over. So just saying, thank you. You know, I don't have my clock running, and I don't know if I'm, I'm not even sure where I'm at here in my uh, show. Do we need to take a break now? Yeah, okay, let's take a break, and then I'll get to your calls here on Stand to Reason. Stay with us. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? 
you may be interested in starting an STR outpost. STR outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STR Ask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STR Ask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Just a reminder, and you're going to be hearing more about this as time goes on, obviously, but our new series for reality is starting, obviously, the end of September here in Southern California. We'll be at Biola University um, this year. And the topic is man or maker who says who you are. We're focusing on the issue of our identity. And, uh, of course, we have uh, Sean McDowell is going to be part of the team there. Christopher Yuan, Tripp and Megan Allman, uh, Lanej Garrison will be part of the team for that series. All your favorite SDR speakers will be there. And tickets are on sale now at most locations. So if you go to realityapologetics.com, you can get the details. Plus, I wanted you to know that, that we just released another uh, oh is it not out yet no it says coming soon here in my notes so uh, i know that I've, we're just in the final stages in post-production of a new stru called relativism feet firmly planted in midair and i'm teaching that uh and that'll be released very soon it's um i don't know how many it's str core stru course and I, i'm not sure it's like five sessions maybe or, or possibly six but um that'll be a great help to you because relativism is the heartbeat of the age and if you don't understand how it works you're going to have a hard time making sense of the opposition you face as a follower of christ in our culture today so that's coming out and john noyce has uh, one uh, titled Jesus the Only Way, and they'll be available. Oh, there it is, starting June 30th. And so if you are, um, if you're not signed up, you can sign up today and take other courses that are already there, training.str.org. <clears throat> okay, let's see. Uh, that's that. Now we're going to take some calls here, some of our open uh, mic calls, and let's start with Bill, Billy Maurer, please. 
you're in a conversation and someone says 9-11 and vaccines and the Vietnam War are all hoaxes, all about government control, what would you say? What is indoctrination? Thanks. Okay, Billy, thank you. And um, if I were faced with somebody, I'm just taking this because uh, it has to do with how we know what we know, okay? And also the concept of indoctrination is really significant because I think a lot of that is going on <clears throat> in a way that is hostile to Christianity and the Christian worldview. So um, if somebody is going to deny 9-11, I know there are people that do that, and they're going to deny or, or, or say that vaccines are you know, some kind of government plot, or that the Vietnam War was a hoax. Um, it, it's hard to know how to engage a person like that thoughtfully. With, I mean, they, they're, they're, the, the issue of uh, vaccines is a, a little bit more of a micro-issue, but 9-11 and the Vietnam War? Um, Anybody who denies either of those things is, or the moon landing for that matter, that whole project, is, um, is, is believing in the face of so many facts that I do not know what would possibly convince them. All right. It reminds me of the old saw about the man who thought he was dead. And nobody can convince him that he wasn't dead until they took him to the doctor. And the doctor said, asked this question, do dead men bleed? And he said, no. And then he stuck him with a pin and he started bleeding. And then the guy said, well, I guess dead men do bleed. <laughs> Which means there's some people you're not able to convince, no matter what facts you bring to bear on the question. And people who deny these, 9-11, for example, Vietnam War, the moon landing, etc. Vaccines is a little trickier. Um, but uh, the the information re regarding all those other things is so incredible. Look at hey, how could you n deny nine eleven? The twin towers are not there anymore. <laughs> I watched them come down on TV when it happened. Anyway, all right. But there is a question now of indoctrination. Now, what is indoctrination? Indoctrination is where you you instill doctrine of some sort in a person, in doctrination. Characteristically, though, the, the word isn't just referring to a kind of instruction, but a, a kind of um, distorted destruction, instruction rather, a distorted influence on a person's life. People who are indoctrinated are people who get essentially one side of the story um, in a manipulative in a manipulative and powerful way without any uh, broad appeal to um, outside sources or, or allowing contrary views to intervene okay now I think there's a lot of indoctrination going on now people say well Christians are indoctrinated well they're trained but nobody that I know of is saying Christians shouldn't read other material. They shouldn't consider other ideas. In fact, they can't do otherwise unless they're 
cordoned off in a you know, in a little town somewhere where they have no TV or no internet or no exposure to the outside world, because the opposing ideas, the ideas opposing Christianity are everywhere. I mean, think of it. Right now, we have an entire month that is dedicated in every area of culture to celebrating homosexuality. It's Gay Pride Month. It's not just like people having parties, it's whole organizations, the military. There was a big party on the lawn of the White House. You know, you can't avoid those ideas. So if Christians are being indoctrinated with ideas, it can only happen if they if if they if they're so utterly isolated that there's no exposure to the rest of the culture. So that's just uh, on balance not happening. However, there is massive indoctrination with leftist ideology because that is pronounced all over the place and the opposite the opposing side is silenced and we've seen this oftentimes. Not oftentimes, we see it everywhere. And uh and sometimes aggressively silenced. So there is a threat of indoctrination where where a doctrine is instilled in somebody about the nature of something, the nature of morality, the nature of uh, human flourishing, the, the, the nature of reality. And that one view gets pounded in and pounded in and pounded in until people just accept it, because it seems like that's the only acceptable way to go. And the rhetoric that goes along with it makes it sound appealing. And I think we have to be um, careful about that. Even in churches, by the way, we do have, in in a sense, theological views that are, are parochial, that are held by one group and not by the other in terms of Christianity. They may be they may be innocuous, or they may be noble, uh, or they may just be wrong. We had a question today, as Amy and I did STR Ask, about the Word Faith Movement and how to respond to Christians who are kind of involved in that movement. Well, there's an indoctrination that goes there, because these people all hang out together. They go to their services together. They read their same books, and so they have one understanding of the text— now, my point about about the word faith movement is that, uh, and the the health, wealth, and prosperity movement, they're one and the same, is that the, these people can't be reading their Bibles very carefully, because writ large, large, just think of it, the book of Hebrews was written to persecuted Christians. The book of First Thessalonians was written to persecuted Christians. The book of Second Thessalonians was written to persecuted Christians. Suffering Christians, the book of First uh, uh, Peter was written to suffering Christians. I, the the, the book uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Second Timothy were written by Peter uh, by Paul when he was in prison. Uh, they're not experiencing this prosperity gospel. So if you step back and you look at these things, this, these facts about the New Testament writings, and I could probably include more books in there, Philippians. It just ain't there. Were these first Christians for the first 400 years suffering because they just didn't understand the true gospel and they weren't very spiritual? Or Paul himself? So, uh, and he, in Second Corinthians, chronicles his afflictions, whipped four times, 
beaten with rod three times, shipwrecked twice, stoned once, left for dead. Not exactly health, wealth, and prosperity. So where are they getting this stuff? Well, they're being indoctrinated. They're getting one side, verses that are cherry-picked, and, um, and, and, and they're, they're believing a distorted understanding of the New Testament. So there is indoctrination, and we have to be careful of it. I do not think our convictions about 9-11, the, the fact of 9-11, or the fact of the Vietnam War, or the moon landing, are a result of our mere indoctrination against the facts of reality. And something that Jim Wallace has pointed out, Jay Warner Wallace, author of Cold Case Christianity, and I'm sitting in this seat here a month ago, or so, three weeks ago. Um, he he as a as a cold case detective, um, he 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 makes the point. It's really hard to keep things secret. He's not much of a fan of conspiracy theories because it's really hard to keep things secret. The more people you have, the more difficult it is to keep it secret. Okay, and so just think of how many people would have to be playing along to contrive a, a, a falsehood about the Vietnam War, that the Vietnam War never happened, for example, etc., etc. So this just makes the point, underscores the point, that some people are going to be vulnerable, um, and uh, they're not going to believe, they're not going to believe you no matter what evidence that you bring before them. So those are those are conversations that might be best to abandon if you're talking with a true believer of those kinds of things. So there you go, Billy, and thank you for your question. Here's Tom, and uh, Tom has a question about what's going on, actually the indoctrination that we see going on in our public schools. Hello, Greg. I was uh, wondering if you had been hearing much about some of the talk that uh, California, the governor and his wife are becoming very strong in their push towards the uh, sexual aspects in their public school system, um, even going so far as to have the kids watch pornographic films. And I guess my question would be, is there something that we can do in addition to praying for your state and other states that are getting involved with this, as well as um, is there something that you know that Christians are doing within the state that we can help them also with to kind of get it known out there that parents are being, well, bamboozled by the public school systems. Mm -hmm. Thanks. And by the way, my name is Tom. I'm from Montana. Well, thank you, Tom. And thanks for your concern about California while you're, um, you're resting up there in Montana, that big red state there. Um, yeah, I think there are two things that can be done. And by the way, this isn't so much a secret. I mean, some of these details, like uh, the governor's recent um, efforts and um, 
with his wife, etc. These are not, they're not so secret. That that might not be so well known, but characteristically what's going on in the schools is, is, is infuriating a lot of people because we are paying taxes for our children to be indoctrinated in a, um, in a, in a, um, in a contentious and a very particular and peculiar political view. And I say political view because the, these are it's not just morality. All the machinery of politics are being used to indoctrinate regarding these things. And much of it has to do with sex, as you've mentioned, and going to absolutely unbelievably extreme extremes to make it to to push their agenda forward. Uh, and I it it's almost like each week you think, how could it get any worse? And then and then something more bizarre happens. Just imagine how could even a year ago countenancing that we would have major politicians promoting the idea that young kids ought to be watching pornography. Right? It's it's like leaves one kind of speechless. Well, there's two things we could do. First of all, don't stay speechless. And in fact, there has been quite a move by conservatives, not just Christians, but conservatives in general, to um, to, to do something about this, and uh, to, to get um, to 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 voice opposition in aggressive ways at school board meetings and the like. Okay, now there's a right way to do this and a wrong way to do this, and I had um, a, a friend that was infuriated by the things that were going on and and constructed a rather longish letter that he planned to send to the school board and wanted my opinion on it. And um, uh, two things that I noticed about the letter, which I mentioned, is first of all, it's too long. He, it probably was two and a half or two pages long, paragraph after paragraph after paragraph, and in it was a whole bunch of Bible stuff and also the idea that our country is founded on Judeo-Christian principles, and now we're deviating from them. I do not think this is persuasive. If you want to make a difference in someone's life, in, in, a, in a public setting like this, um, you, you can't kind of throw the Bible at them or kind of offer like a we-were-here-first kind of rationale. It will not be persuasive. By the way, even the best attempts are probably not going to be persuasive to a group of um, people that are deeply committed to an agenda and changing our children's minds and hearts on in to be in line with their very radical point of view. Um, they're committed to this. Nevertheless, it doesn't mean we can't show up. And the more people who show up, the better. Now, I, you think of what happened, I think, last year, when a lot of people, parents, were enraged at what was going on in the schools, and they were so enraged that the government even threatened, and I think it was the president, uh, of using, you know, uh, of characterizing, he did kind of implicitly characterize this as domestic terrorism when the parents are objecting. Forget about all, the, all that stuff. Just let them do their hoot and holler. If they are saying things like that because 
there is an effectiveness to people speaking out. One person shows up, it's not going to make that much difference. When you have, you know, a hundred people show up and they're angry, it doesn't mean they're impolite, but they are angry. That that is that's our best shot. And the more people who show up at these things angry, legitimately angry, and telling the school board, you are stepping out of bounds, you will not do this to our children. I think the more the better. And uh that that could actually change something. Or just go in and take your kid out. You guys are doing this, I'm taking my kid out. Oh, that's not legal. That's truancy. Well, then you fight that battle. Then you find somebody like um, the ADF or Alliance for Defending Freedom or somebody like that to help you out on these things. We litigate. So you can take that step. The other step, and I've just kind of hinted at it, is you just pull your kid out and go elsewhere. Okay, now here's the problem, though. If you pull your kid out and go elsewhere, that means you have to go to a private institution, and a private institution costs money. All right. Amy, could you get—I um, want to read that, that, uh, that paragraph that I wrote for my wife to speak at that event, the school board, but I don't have my computer in front of me. If you could just print it out from yours, and then I'll, I'll offer that in just a moment. If you want to go— to another, uh, if you want to pull your kid out, this hurts them because the government money that's given to the local school is based on headcount. You pull your kid out or your your larger Christian community pulls their kids out and you either homeschool or go to a private school, then they lose money. That hurts them, okay? The more we do that, and by the way, there's a gr- huge exodus right now from public schools, and that ought to continue. In my view, the federal government shouldn't be involved in education at all. It is not one of its constitutional duties, and if it's not its constitutional duty, it should not be doing it. That's left to the state. That's in the Constitution. So you have a radical violation of the federal government being involved, Title IX and all of that stuff, and how they're manipulating Title IX um, with regards to the transgender stuff. Okay, But even in local communities, you have groups of people, and this is because the teachers' unions and everything, wildly, radically leftist organizations that are deeply committed to indoctrinating your children according to their politics. This is a wrong use of, of uh, public money, and it's the wrong use of uh, the, the teachers' um, trust and efforts. Okay? Thank you, Amy. So— um, you pull them out. Now that's going to cost cost something. Either you're gonna you're gonna have to homeschool. That's hard because it takes somebody out of play working, or you're gonna have to pay for a private school, which is expensive. Here's one of the problems, and this is a long term problem. Uh, it's a mistake that I did not make. Okay, I'm just saying. Christians get married. And when they get married, they build their budget on two incomes. And when they start having children, they can't quit because they've committed themselves based on double incomes. They can't get rid of one. They can't lose one income and still have the lifestyle and pay the bills um, for their for their lifestyle. You know, they can have the lifestyle that they've committed themselves to. When I got married, um, you know, I retired my wife from her job, 
But even if she wanted to work, she could. But we would build our budget on my income. I'm responsible for taking care of our family. And therefore, if we needed to, you know, pull our kids out, um, then homeschooling is a possibility because my mom, (laughs) my mom, is that Freudian or what? My wife was not tied to another job. Okay. And um, we we would, it turned out we didn't have to make great sacrifices to put our kids in private school. Um, but it, it even so, we would have to keep them out of the public school system. So uh, I had one daughter did go to a charter school, high school, but it was very, very different than your standard public school. And most of the influential people in her life in the charter school were Christians. And so she was in a relatively safe environment. Okay. But that's the option. You say, just say no. We're not doing this anymore. We are not supporting this anymore. We're not sending our kids to this. You're not going to do this to our children. We will not let you do this. Now, I made a reference a few moments ago to, you know, going to some of these meetings and having your voice heard. And um, uh, there was an occasion, I'm trying to think, when is this? This is 2019. Well, it's been four years already. 2019, where there was a a, a, a CBUSD, Conejo Valley Unified School District meeting, just actually down the road from our home, walking distance actually, where um, they invited parents to make uh, to to share their ideas, concerned citizens to share their ideas about um, about a curriculum that was over-sexualized. I'll just say that. And um, and so I, I was out of town, but I wrote a piece for my wife to read, which she read. You just have three minutes, not very long. But uh, she did a great job. And uh, this is posted on our website. Um, if you just put school board something or other, if you search for school board, I don't know, maybe Amy can give me the full title, you can find it there. And other people have taken this and used it. But I'll tell you what, I I employed a particular tactic uh, or had a particular strategy, and I wasn't going to quote the Bible. And I wasn't going to talk about us being a Judeo-Christian nation, and I wasn't going to write a long screed. She only had three minutes or whatever. Um, but even if there was no time limitation, I still would have been brief. And especially if it was mailing something out, they see a long thing, they think, oh gosh, they're not inclined to read it. So it has no per- persuasive power. What I traded on was, in a certain sense, I leveraged their own values against them. And you'll see how I did this in what I wrote. Here it is. We are a diverse community, and the school board values diversity. That means there are diverse understandings about controversial issues like human sexuality. Traditionally, parents have been the ones to carefully inform their children about these issues at a time and in a way appropriate for their age and within the protected environment of the family. The government, represented here by the school board, is not has not traditionally been allowed to interfere with educating issues so critical to family and so appropriate to private parental nurturing of their children. To do so would be to have individual family beliefs and values overridden by whatever group happened to be in power at the time. 
No one set of personal values should be allowed to dictate the beliefs of our culture in a public education system that includes such diverse groups as Muslims and Christians and Orthodox Jews and Buddhists and humanists and atheists and so many others. Okay, you see how I'm doing this, right? Public values shared by all, on the other hand, Values like honesty, kindness, truth-seeking, integrity, respect, etc., should be encouraged by all, including the schools, since they are agreed upon by all and are not controversial. However, contentious and divisive personal views should not be forced upon our children. Let me say something about that statement. These views are contentious and divisive. They cause trouble. Oh, I know it's all cloaked in diversity and us all getting along and being kind and loving each other. That don't they don't do that. They cause trouble because the schools are stepping out of their appropriate domain and abusing their power. And this causes divisiveness because they were enforcing a parochial philosophy, theology, politics on kids that must be in attendance in that class. Okay, so I'm speaking clearly how here. Contentious and divisive personal views should not be forced upon our children. This is indoctrination and replaces the parent's rightful role. Now, I'm moving into my close here. When government takes over the responsibility of informing our children's private and personal moral values, instead of the parents and individual families doing so, it's a step towards oppression and a significant and serious violation of the diversity and multicultural respect the school board stands for. If any group in power gets to force their personal values on our kids, then when a different group gets power, they will be able to force their personal values on that group's kids. Neither is consistent with diversity, tolerance, or appropriate American liberty. Please, I respectfully implore you, leave that job to the parents of the children that belong to them and not to the state. Thank you. So there's an example of my effort to make a strong appeal based on shared values, calling indoctrination indoctrination, and arguing that this is inconsistent with the, with diversity and tolerance and family values. Okay? So uh, that's the best way to go about that, in my humble opinion. We, it's time for a break? Yeah, okay, let's do that, and then we'll have one more segment with some more questions. Hey friends, would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. Have you seen our brand new website? Stop by str.org and enjoy a fresh, clean layout with all the same great content. 
The new Stand to Reason website was designed with you in mind. It has an easier-than-ever navigation and a crisp, simple layout so you can find all the sound analysis and careful commentary that you've come to expect from us. Browse new features that make finding your favorite resources easier than ever. As always, it's our goal to equip you, our fellow Christians, with a confidence, clear thinking, and courage you need for every encounter you have as a Christian ambassador. Our new website is just one way we're fulfilling that goal, allowing you to access the resources you need in a new and improved way. So visit str.org and keep coming back to discover new podcasts, articles, and videos each and every day. All right. Um, Kyle, I want you to queue up Adrian there for us. And uh, incidentally, that piece that I just read is on our website. Uh, Amy's putting a link here, of course, with the podcast information. Uh, for you can, I had to look it up the other day myself. Turned out I didn't have my own copy, my Evernote. So I just went to our website and typed in school board in the search feature, and it came right to the top. So I was able to capture that for my own records. But uh, that's how you can find it if you don't have the link yourself. We got Adrian. How are we doing there? Okay. Hello, Greg. I was reading an article on the Christian Post about Doreen Virtue, a New Age person who became a Christian. Um, regarding her old work, she says, I'm devastated that some people may be in hell now because they were following my work. My question is, is that true? Can some people be in hell now because of something somebody does in their lives that's bad well thanks for the question adrian and um i guess my simple answer is no and um people make decisions about things for complex reasons all right keep in mind there are two things going on here by the way one of them is the reason they're in hell and the reason they're in hell is because they have broken God's law. And God looks at their life, and, they ha- and he assesses it, and then judges them justly according to their sins as recorded in the book, using the reference from Revelation chapter 20. So nobody goes to hell for not receiving Jesus or for not believing in Jesus. That isn't the reason that they're in hell. The reason that they're in a place of judgment is because they performed acts worthy of judgment. Now there is um, there is a there is a uh, antidote, of course, and that is they could be rescued because a rescuer has made provision for them. But they must put their trust in Jesus for that to benefit them. And it may be then the reasons that they, or what they might say, or one of the reasons that might contribute to their rejection of Jesus is bad experiences with Christians. But remember, I I said a moment ago that people's motivations for doing these, for rejecting Christ, are sometimes complex. There are lots of reasons that come to the surface. Some are rational reasons. Okay, oh, I can't believe in God because whatever. Here's the, you know, evil in the world or whatever. 
So there's a ra- what appears to be a rational barrier there. Sometimes people do for emotional reasons. This is an example. I had a bad experience with Christians, and therefore I don't want to consider Christianity. Sometimes for prejudi- prejudicial reasons. I've got my own beliefs. I don't want to think about anything else. I have prejudged and drawn my own conclusions that I want to look at. I don't want to look at anybody else's view. And then sometimes people have have uh, have reject the solution just out of bullheadedness. Okay, now um, I actually think that's the main reason. I just read this morning John chapter three has that wonderful verse in there about God loving the world so much that He was willing to give His Son to provide opportunity for eternal life. But Jesus then says that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because bad Christians did bad things to them. No, that isn't what he said. He said, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So the issue ultimately comes down to a moral issue. Now this, I mean, obviously we are to put our best foot forward for virtue's sake, for God's sake, and for the and to not provide any more um, apparent stumbling blocks for people choosing Christ, turning to Him, accepting forgiveness, and becoming one of God's children. That that's on us. But by the nevertheless, even if a person has had all kinds of bad experiences with Christians. As uh, Mary Jo Sharp said in our last series of Reality, um, the actions of Christians cannot be the litmus test to the truth of Christianity. The litmus test for the truth of Christianity falls on the shoulders of Christ, not on the shoulders of Christians. Okay, again, not to exonerate Christians for doing things that are not appropriate, but nevertheless, um, the, the, um, the, the reason why people are being judged is not because of something else that happened to them, some Christian, that a Christian did to them. The reason they're being judged is because of their rebellion against God, and they loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's Jesus' assessment, okay? So, uh, thank you for that, Adrian. I have a question. I'm, my, I'm a little mixed up of my timing here. Do we have five minutes left? We have two minutes left. We have three minutes left. Okay, let's let's hear from Mark Morris. Gotcha. Okay, Mark Morris here. Hello, Greg. Some friends and I got into a discussion about the literal use of the word bond servant versus the metaphorical use of the word bond servant in the New Testament. Can you add your understanding to that for me? Thank you. I don't actually, um, this may be a um, debate or discussion that I'm not privy to, because doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S, the anglicized version of the Greek word that's translated bondservant or slave. It can be translated either way. John MacArthur prefers slave. I'm not sure that there's a metaphorical versus literal. 
um, there are bond servants, I guess, that are literal bond servants. That is, that they have a uh, an obligation. They've organized, arranged a, a an oblig uh, obligatory relationship where they're they are um, has what's the right word? They've they've enlisted underneath somebody else to serve them for exchange of goods. Okay, uh, indentured servanthood would be an example of this. Now, of course, in the first century, in the ancient Near East, there was also real bonafide slaves. They didn't get anything. But of course, anybody that was uh, in in the nation of Israel involved, there, these whoever was bond servant slash slave, uh, and the same Hebrew word, avad, was used to describe either both sides. They, they, they had union representative re- representation in the law, okay? But I think what Paul is doing when he talks about bondservant doulos in the New Testament is he's simply saying, we have to consider ourselves just like that. We owe, we're under God. We are slaves to him, if you will, bondservants, either way. And so he's trading on that, that relationship to describe our obligation before God. I think it's a good one. And that's how we should see it. We owe him. Okay, friends, that's it for this hour. Great Coco here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now.